0: Our thanks to Liquid Technology for sponsoring the DataNots today. Liquid Technology purchases decommissioned IT hardware, provides secure on- and off-site data destruction, as well as fully compliant and green e-waste recycling solutions for your organization. Visit them at liquidtechnology.net slash podcast. This week's show is sponsored by Illumio, whose breakthrough adaptive segmentation technology stops lateral threats inside of any data center and cloud. Check out their website for details at alumio.com/datanots.
1: There is nothing like the magical moment where you crack into a thick tome of knowledge and eagerly anticipate all of the tasty bits of information held within. From design and architecture experiences to figuring out where all the nerd knobs live and how to properly turn them, technical references are a delight to IT professionals the world around. In today's show, we look at a book covering all of the resources available to a VMware vSphere host, which is a veritable treat for your noodle. Howdy, I am Chris Wall, you can follow me at Chris Wall, and with me is my co-host who likes to take his network unicorn out for a little trot on warm weather weekends, he's Ethan Banks, at ECBanks on the Twitters, and this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. As I alluded to, we're going to be talking about vSphere host resources, and who better to tell us about that than Frank Deniman and Niels Hogwart, and I probably screwed that up, but (laughs) welcome to the show, gentlemen. We'll start with Frank. Say hi to the audience. What do you do? Where are you at? And we'll dive right in.
2: Uh, hi, Chris, and hi, Ethan. Thanks for, for having me. My name is Frank Dedeman. I am a senior staff architect working at VMware R&D, and I concentrate on the technical marketing strategy of the upcoming VMware Cloud and AWS services. And Niels.
3: Hi there, Ethan and Chris. So I'm a freelance virtualization architect just a uh, VCDX
1: and V-Expert and uh, happy to be on the show. I like how you say, like, just a VCDX. Yeah. Like, that's no big deal. <laughs> I, I appreciate <laughs> the humbleness. So, yeah. Actually, Ethan, you're the only odd man out on this show. We're we're ganging up on you, the VCDX mafia here.
0: Well, I am, I am suitably humbled and uh, going to have to just, you know, <laughs> be that way.
1: <laughs> so I don't have a VCDX in my future, I don't think. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. So... The way I wanted to start off was talking about a new book that's coming out. I've seen a bunch of Twitter activity, Facebook activity on the BSphere six point five host resources deep dive book. And Frank was nice enough to send over kind of like a little bit of a history. I was hoping maybe you could explain that, Frank. You're talking about how Niels is working on a network functions virtualization project, and you're obviously going super deep into NUMA and CPU and whatnot. I mean, what was the story that made this book come to reality? It's an interesting story as everybody's always
2: looking at the new services and the new overlays. And we're trying to create all these nice platforms with NSX and with vSAN and, and other stuff. The reality is, we think it's it's really ironic, is that it actually brings you back to the what you would said in the intro, the nerd knobs of a hypervisor. Niels was, was talking about how to get the performance up from, from particular you know, virtual machines and, and applications. And we figured out at one point that, hey... There's something wrong with the design and the way it actually consumes memory. And because it's a NUMA system, every system nowadays is a NUMA system, we have to look closely on how actually that virtual machine is configured and how to actually get that memory footprint within a physical NUMA node to make it better. And from that point on, it was like a snowball effect. We started off with NUMA, then we figured out that, hey, we need to take a look at caching as well. Niels dove into the whole TX and RX thread and and came up with amazing discoveries as well and that convinced us that that like hey while you're basically looking at all those new sexy future platforms it really boils down in knowing your host local stuff so in one way or another we're getting back to the 90s where we looked at <laughs> this is a storage controller and this is a cpu and this is a little bit memory and yeah of course, there's uh, there's nice there are nice UIs that can help you a uh, guide to set up a system. But one, once you start to push the, the limits of such a platform, then you need to go back and take a look at the fundaments of your your architecture.
0: Is that really what it's about? I mean, getting the most out of your system when you're pushing the limits? I mean, that sounded like the key phrase there, that we're tweaking the nerd knobs really seem to matter. Yeah, well,
2: yes and no, because... I believe that for a one particular application, it does matter when you want to have that microsecond or that nanosecond latency shaved off. But what we typically forget is that we're using a platform that is designed for fairness, that is designed to run as many virtual machines as possible because the premise of virtualization was consolidation, right, we have a lot of workloads and we have this hardware sitting around absolutely doing nothing. Let's cram on a couple of those virtual machines onto one host and bam, we have consolidation ratio and we have savings. Now that whole idea and that whole, or the, the way the scheduler works and the, the hypervisor works is completely contrary to isolating out a particular performance. So we go back to the noisy neighbor stuff, right? So at one point you start to figure out that I want to run this, and it's possible because the hypervisor is optimized to give you the performance and to leverage the the, the hardware specifications we can use today. But in reality is, you also have to look at the other consumers as well. Are there virtual machines running on the same system that can be optimized to actually behave a little bit better, to become
1: decent neighbors instead of noisy neighbors, right? Right. So it's not necessarily pushing things to the limit necessarily. I guess it's not even the limit itself that's the issue. It's almost like there's so many moving parts and we've spent so long cramming workloads on hypervisors in general. I don't think it's just a VMware problem. I think it's just hypervisors in general were there to consolidate, to make the use, as you say, of all that wasted hardware that's sitting there being lazy. You want to whip it into shape. Mm -hmm. But it does feel like the hardware has moved on to the point where, hey, it is a good point to take a breather and look back at the hardware and say, okay, are we still doing this right? Because... I know the worst things I could ever hear in the world of design is best practice. Oh, yeah. Because they get, they get so old and crusty, and the best practices that we've been relying on for five-plus years aren't taking into account things like NUMA and other technologies that will go in further in the show. So I think that makes sense to me, thinking of Ethan's comment more than just, I want to cram it to the 100th percentile, but more about how do I squeeze all that extra resources out of the hardware for just general-purpose workloads. Yeah. Interesting. So the other thing that I saw some commentary on that maybe Niels, I can, I can get you to comment on this was you were working on NFV, you were working on sounds like overlays and other systems that would potentially consume CPU and resources out of the hypervisor. Where did that kind of stream into okay, I need to go really deep below the NFV layer to squeeze the hardware and make it do what it needs to do.
3: Okay, that that started off at my project back then for a for a large telecom company and We had a voice over LTE, over 4G application, and we opted to to virtualize, obviously, because of manageability, portability, and stuff like that. And there were some constraints that led us to not being able to adopt the Azure IOV, for instance. With that news, we went back to the drawing board and actually looked at how can we get the hypervisor to spend as much CPU time to actually process network IO. And well, that was the whole start of the discussion with Frank about NUMA and was that all in place. Yeah, that
1: was the starting point for me. Gotcha, like literally we would like to do this, but we can't, and the sad trombone plays and you're like, wait a minute, we need to, we need to take a step back and figure this all out. It's, it's interesting because it feels like I haven't seen a lot of these problems back in the day. And I'm wondering maybe just because I'm focusing on different parts of the world, different parts of the ecosystem. I like though, that there's a need to sort of go back to basics, but also explore. It's like basics plus the new hotness, you know? Challenging assumptions. Yeah. Because there's a lot of change that has gone on in the world.
3: Yeah, that's nicely put, challenging assumptions. In many cases, and we still have that right now. Actually, yesterday, Frank and I had a discussion about some pretty obvious technologies for our day-to-day understandings. But when you really think about it, it's not that obvious at all. And Frank, uh, talking about uh, the the uh, motion limit per host, uh, the stuff like that. And that's also what we want to achieve with this book, right? So we, it's sort of a, uh, yeah, well, a myth-debunking book
0: in that way. <laughs> it's still ultimately a, a problem of chase the bottleneck, where the trick is being able to monitor your system in enough detail that you can actually find out where the bottlenecks are and then do whatever it takes to adjust the systems so that that bottleneck's been removed and then basically move the bottleneck somewhere else. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, you always keep pushing the limits, right? And with every new technology, we get rid of old limits, but we tend to find the new limits. And that's the interesting part. Now, the problem is with all those new technologies and typically with a little bit older understanding and assumptions of how it works, one of the things that that is really difficult is to actually understand where to look and how it actually relates to each other. And that's what we try to do as well. So within the book, we we started with CPU. And one thing that I'd really concentrate on is caching because this is something we all forget or most of us forget, right? Because caching is the ultimate performance enhancer. And that's what we did in the 70s. Well, I didn't. but the IT <laughs> industry in, in general in the 80s, the 90s, and we're still at it, right? And every time when Intel, Intel AMD is coming uh, coming around with this new uh, architecture, of course, every time a new CPU or a new microarchitecture is released, typically when you look to find the print, you will see that there's a new caching optimization going on. There's a new caching snoop policy or protocol, and it, it helps to optimize the latency of fetching data. Now, the interesting thing is, and for me, this is extremely interesting with my history of my previous employer. Sometimes we optimize something up to an insane level, and yet we ignore or we basically well, brush off the other side of things that help to get the uh, the ultimate performance. And now this is, sounds a little bit, bit vague, but you have to understand that computer architecture, and especially within a virtual infrastructure, everything is a chain, right? When you want to process stuff, you need to feed the processor data. Well, the data comes from memory. Well, how does the data come into memory? Storage, typically, right? So sometimes we optimize a NUMA system, but we forget to look at caching. Or we actually forget to look at power management, right? This is a myth that needs to be debunked every single day. We need to hammer that one down, and we can talk about that one as well. But then think about the storage, right? And some people will say, oh, I have this all flash array, which is awesome. And it gives me a X amount of uh, of performance. And yet we can do so much better, right? And we can go, uh, we can move the data close to the CPU because that's the whole trick. Because data and CPU wants to live together, but it's the economics of things and it's the physics that keeps them apart, right? And that is crucial to understand. To figure that one out, you need to understand the whole chain, but also understand how the current hardware actually interacts with each other. You make it
1: sound like a, a tragic love story, like it CPU is, and is. data just want to be together. Oh, and- this is Romeo
2: <laughs> and Juliet, this is this.
1: <laughs> I wanted to tease apart this quote. We hope to wake up readers and get them to shy away from the statement that the hypervisor is a commodity. And I think the statement that a hypervisor is a commodity has been around for a while and it's been kind of taken for granted. So why are you trying to challenge that? What's the point there uh, around challenging the hypervisor as a commodity?
2: I think that's a part of the, the whole idea about we're now moving towards platforms and we're now moving towards uh, hyperconverged systems and all those new movements. So everything else is like a set and forget. So I think that, In essence, we always want to concentrate on a single thing because deep down in our heart, we understand we're not good at multitasking. And one thing uh, is that, hey, this is old and done. This new platform is sexy. I don't care about the hypervisor. I actually don't need to care about the hypervisor because it all works, which is in its sense is true, right? Because you can run an ESX hypervisor for five years Never touch it, and it still works. And you can still uh, you can do uh, do still. I've certainly seen that.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> system runtime six years. Like, well, that's a great thing, and that's also a terrifying thing. <laughs> yep, yep. So the thing is,
2: what we want to do is, we want to, like you said, we want to contest the 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 assumptions and we make the hypervisor sexy again. I believe I think that's key because there's so much cool things you can do within on the host level, especially with the new hardware. Look at 3D Crosspoint, for example. If you look closely to what that can bring to an environment, that's insane, right? That is really insane. And especially we're now doing a gen one. If the newer types will arrive, man, mind blowing stuff. I want to almost want to quote Chad on this, face melting stuff, but (laughs) (laughs) it is, think about what you, can now do as, as as a part of in memory, right? Instead of going to a data system and, and trying to fetch the data, you're getting the data closer to the, the CPU. You can start to think about, do I need to have this data every time around? Do I, well, we can go, I can talk hours about this. But the reality is, is that by going back to the hypervisor again, you can create systems that weren't possible
0: two, three, four years before abstracting everything away doesn't hide the need for fine-tuning is uh the thing that really stuck out to me in this segment deep systems level knowledge is actually still helpful and informed humans are i mean i guess we could argue this point but i think informed humans are the best optimizers and and so you can get a lot of value by understanding what's really happening uh, underneath the hood what
1: grabbed your attention chris The comment about the hypervisor being a commodity, it's always been a little abrasive for me. I tend to think of virtualization as the commodity portion of the stack. You know, it's a way to to commoditize hardware, really. And every hypervisor has different features. I guess I can see both sides of the argument. There's general virtualization requirements that all hypervisors have, and that's the commodity part. But Frank's right, there are some special sauce things that make host resources more attractive with one particular hypervisor over the next.
0: Our data not sponsor today, Liquid Technology, asks the following. Do you have decommissioned IT equipment just sitting in your data center or office? Is your company planning an upgrade, cloud migration, or relocation? Liquid Technology can help. They will de-rack, pack, and purchase your excess technology hardware. Increase your budget by getting money back for your excess IT equipment. Liquid Technology will ensure your end-of-life IT equipment is safe. They provide on- or off-site, auditable data destruction services. Whether your operations are in Tulsa or Tokyo, Liquid Technology has expert knowledge in local regulations to deliver a compliant global solution to your company. If you are concerned about the environment, note that Liquid Technology is an EPA-recognized dual-certified green recycler. Don't let your assets depreciate in power-down racks or storage rooms. Gain that space back and maximize the return of your excess technology. Visit liquidtechnology.net slash podcast today for a chance to win a $300 Amazon gift card. That's liquidtechnology.net slash podcast. So guys, one of the things that was mentioned in, in our earlier segment was NUMA, non-uniform memory access. Can you level set for us? Tell us what NUMA is for uh, those folks who are maybe new to the concept.
2: NUMA it stands for what you said, non-uniform memory access. And what happens is that it's a new way, or actually not a new way, but it's it's a another form of addressing memory from a CPU perspective. So we used to have a centralized bus, and all the memory was attached to a bus, and every CPU would talk to the bus and basically would fetch the data over that bus. Well, that didn't scale very well. As we started to add more CPUs, the bus didn't grow in, in bandwidth, thus uh, we got uh, less performance by adding and making the bus... Uh, lengthier and lengthier so they started to think about how can we do this so they started to move the memory controller into the cpu and then attach memory directly to that memory controller which was in the cpu now that is considered local memory now when you have a multi cpu system you have let's use the most common configuration today that's a two cpu system when I talk about CPU, I'm talking about a CPU package. That's something that you hold in your hand. And in that CPU package, there are cores and there is a memory controller and there are other things, right? Those two CPUs, so those, those two CPU packages, they each have their own memory. But because it's in one system, one CPU package can actually connect to the other CPU, to its other memory controller and, and access the local memory of that other CPU. Now, that is considered remote. Now, because there's a difference in distance, the access latency becomes non-uniform. So it's not equal. And that's what NUMA system is all about.
0: Because you've got a variety of distance, if you will, a variety of latency characteristics for the memory fetches? Yes. And that's just pure physics, right? You cannot beat physics. There's no way around it. The
2: moment you add distance, you get. It it takes longer.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I, I will comment from my previous life consulting, like NUMA, NUMA was one of the most common gotchas. I had to learn NUMA quite early because when you were trying to hit the wall, as far as performance goes, like really, really crush a CPU or, or do those monster, you know, I'm doing the quote fingers, monster verge machines that consume more RAM than, than, you, than you had available in, in one particular set of DIMMs. It was always a NUMA problem. <laughs> so, so I will echo, I've seen this, this quite a bit.
2: Yeah, well, actually, there are two two major problems, right? Either you go beyond the, the core count of a particular CPU packet, and then yeah. basically you span multiple physical CPUs with your, with your virtual machine, or you do it what you said, you add a lot of memory that exceeds the local memory count or amount or of that particular CPU where the vCPUs run on. And those things are nothing more than, typically, it's a political thing right? My software vendor says that my application needs 22 CPUs. So give me 22 CPUs. Well, you're not doing anything. You can actually run better on a two CPU system, right? The whole resize and size your VMs accordingly. And I think we've all had this exercise many, many years.
3: And that was actually, Frank, if I may interrupt you, one of the key points where we got together and talk about NUMA, right? Because as you said, as you trespass the physical course on one CPU socket, yeah, well, then obviously NUMA comes into place. And that's why we uh, went ahead with the Prefer HD yeah. setting. Remember? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. The, this was actually the, the one of the first discussion we ever had, I guess, with me working on that NFE platform and you working on uh, the NUMA deep dive series.
0: So why did we change from uniform to non-uniform architectures? I mean, we had symmetrical multiprocessing uh, to, as, a, as an issue to be solved, but dual socket systems go back a, a long ways. I mean, the, I think even into the 90s, maybe. Yes and no. So the thing is, if you look at the architecture from a uniform
2: perspective, so the the old architecture, the memory controller is placed outside in a centralized spot on the system board. So both CPUs need to uh, need to go to that particular uh, memory controller. And for that memory controller, it will fetch data or it will store data in memory. So that memory controller becomes a bottleneck. Now, maybe it doesn't really become a bottleneck for two hosts, but the industry is always looking to scale out and to go beyond the current practice. So they looked at it and, and they said, well, if we go beyond 8 or 10, it won't scale. We basically get no performance at all. And from that perspective, they said, we, because the industry is always looking how to scale, how to go to the next level, right? Well, look at now, look at your average system now. We, the, the sweet spot of your CPU uh, it's a 12-core CPU at this moment. So in a dual socket system, you have 24 cores. If you hit 24 systems to a centralized memory controller, it's going to be very painful, right? So they needed to change something to scale the core, count because core equals cpus back in the day
0: and and so now with the scaling we have the ability to create terabytes of memory dozens maybe even more hundreds possibly cores okay and so the old bus architecture it just doesn't cut it you've got to go to numa to make that happen yeah
2: well and here's the thing and that's the interesting part are we always going to stick around with numa and i don't think that will be the answer and you will see you actually already see it with particular organizations. For example, Facebook. They work together with Intel to actually create the Xeon D, which is a single CPU package with a lot of memory connected to it. And it doesn't operate in a multi CPU system because Facebook analyzed its particular workload, their front end for their web service, and they said, We just need a lot of memory. That's it, right? And we can do it with a, with a, a limited co- uh, uh, core count. So do you have something for us? And they, and Intel started to, to noodle on it, and they finally came up with the, the Intel Xeon D. So they actually stated, and that's actually a real cool engineering article on Facebook, the engineering blog on Facebook, that actually explains how they moved away to solve that NUMA problem, the non-uniform, the remote access latency that you occur. So That's the interesting part. So. Again, we're moving back again to a, a different <laughs> platform,
1: right? So, well, it's always it's a cyclical thing, right, uh, in the industry. So with data writing across that channel that goes between the memory banks, you know, the QPI, the QuickPack Interconnect, I guess you address that in the book as, as, a, as a bottleneck, both in terms of overall bandwidth, as data has to transfer between different banks of memory, or potentially even sizing for vCPU, vRAM, etc., I just want to get my hands around you know, how powerful this QPI is and then how much available bandwidth and latency it has to serve its workloads. Well, we see it as a natural boundary, right? Try to
2: avoid the QPI as much as possible because you will add inconsistency. And I think this is the key part of the whole book. What we try to achieve here is we try yeah. to educate our readers that this is how it works. Now, once you understand this, you can start to create systems that will provide you with a consistent performance because consistency is much better than one day having it ultra fast and the next day having it a good performance, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Because here's the thing. How do you place that in context? Because if you have five days of ultra blistering fast performance, that is perceived to be normal while it's actually amazing. Now, the moment you have, Proper performance, it's bad, right? So to place performance in context, that is really difficult to do. Now, if you have consistency, and what we mean with consistent performance is not having bad performance consistently. because that's
1: not, that's It's not always bad. horrible. This is consistent. Thumbs consistent, up. Yeah.
2: Right? Yeah. Well, exactly. That's not what we're saying. But if you can create a consistent platform, that is much better for the user experience, but also for the administrators and for the architecture to architects, to actually manage this, right? Because you know what's going on. And of course, workload, there is correlation between workload, there's causation in workload. Some workloads, they basically, it's like a chain. So first the front end spins up, then the back end spins up, or you have multiple uh, things doing at once. Before, for example, an exchange when you log on to your Exchange mailbox, you will see the, the global catalog flare up as well. right? So it's a difficult game all by itself. But so what you want to do is you want to create an architecture that provides performance in a consistent manner. right? So back to the QPI. So once you start to use the QPI, the quick path interconnect, that is going to be a problem. It doesn't have to be a problem, but typically on an average basis, you will see a difference in performance performance behavior and that's something we want to to avoid as much as possible and that's what we did with Niels because Neil said at one point we started using HD going which back which
1: is hyperthreading, right where you have two yeah. um, it's one execution resource but you can schedule it twice essentially
2: yeah so what happens is that the CPU scheduler so within the VM kernel there are two schedulers that are focusing on on CPU there's the CPU scheduler itself that is responsible for controlling and scheduling the vCPU to a physical resource. And then there's the NUMA scheduler that basically start to figure out where do I need to place things? What vCPUs do I need to keep apart? What CPUs do I need to uh, keep together? All that stuff. So what happens is that it's more or less like an affinity group type of thing, right? So once you have a configuration of X amount of CPUs that, that span across multiple physical CPUs, you start to have a wide VM. And that wide VM, that actually is broken up between two equal parts or equal groups of vCPUs. So, for example, you have a dual socket system with a CPU package that contains 10 cores. So in total, you have 20 cores. So when you have a 12 vCPU virtual machine, it will be split up because the NUMA schedule will count the vCPUs, 1 to 12, and then we'll count the cores in a CPU package, 1 to 10, meaning you basically are exceeding the number of core count. So we'll break it up into two NUMA nodes of six vCPUs. So six vCPUs will be scheduled on one physical package and six vCPUs will schedule on another package. Now, this is the interesting stuff, right? Because it will try to keep the memory access as local as possible. But one thing that you need to know is that the application needs to be optimized for that as well. Typically, that isn't the case. And when we talk about optimization in an operating system as well, typically what NUMA optimization means is I am aware that this is a NUMA system, and that's about it. It doesn't really balance or relocate their processes
1: accordingly, right? Yeah, which, which goes back to your earlier comment that you can't just solve one part of the chain. Right? Exactly. If the application doesn't use it, then you're you're fixing a problem that doesn't actually exist by solving NUMA, if the application isn't going to do anything with that information.
2: Yeah, exactly right, so that's the key. You, you now enter the, the train of thought of, okay, I need to figure out what the output of this process is because that the output of one process is the input of another process. With the way you configure your VM, it now becomes an input to the NUMA scheduler, and that is an output to the CPU scheduler where to place and where to allocate memory, right? So that's the interesting part. Now, what you also can do is you can adjust the NUMA scheduler the way it counts. So instead of saying you need to count cores, you can say let's count hyperthreading. And now, because HT allows two logical processes, it now counts to 20, and now it will fit inside a one a CPU packet. Now this has some benefits and it has some drawbacks, right? And this depends on the way your application behaves. Because you say count HTS or SMTs actually, that doesn't mean that it needs to be scheduled on an HT. It basically says I want my affinity group to be constructed in a particular method. It's the CPU scheduler that actually is responsible for scheduling the, the vCPUs on the physical resource. And that can be in HD or that can be a, a, a full core, depending on how busy the, uh, the, the physical CPU is and what the demand of the, the vCPU is. Because there's a lot of virtual machines that don't utilize their full CPU set every single moment right for right. particular so it's another
1: layer of abstraction where the exactly. scheduler gets to dictate where this actually runs you know it's yeah. not the vm that decides
2: yeah if you if you have a particular process there's a lot of processes in the operating system that are single threaded now there's a lot of processes running at once but overall it doesn't mean that it needs to have those 12 vcpus available all at once typically you don't see that utilization Right. So again, that chain now becomes interesting because now you need to figure out what does my application actually do? Some of the times you cannot, you you know, it's not that busy and you know, it doesn't need 12 CPUs, but for political reasons, you can't change it. Right. Or maybe from a change perspective, you cannot change it because you can only do a, 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 a reconfigure of a VM every six months or whatever. How do you solve that? Well, you can change something in the hypervisor as well. Right? So there
1: are multiple steps in this process. Yeah. The least fun design requirement, politics, you know, or otherwise in networking terms, layer eight issues that are always (laughs) fun. A a quick, um, curious, both your thoughts, just one liner. NUMA, is that just a hypervisor consideration or is it just a VMware consideration? Does bare metal care? Do other hypervisors care? How global is the idea of NUMA?
3: It's, it's not per se a VMware thing. It's, it's all down to the CPU architecture, right? So everybody who is using Intel Xeons is dealing with NUMA.
2: I think it's at planetary scale. It's insane. So I, I wrote the NUMA scheduling series. It actually got featured on the front page of Hacker News. Typically not your virtualization type of, of audience, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's that global
1: my takeaway is that consistency is a key criteria for any architecture i mean as we said you don't want to have just consistently bad performance that's consistent but not good but you can't solve for a bottleneck if it's constantly shifting around so consistency is key what about you Ethan?
0: i noticed here that uh, that we have a good example of a problem that's common throughout it architecture so for example centralized access to any resource in it that's likely to become a bottleneck so in the context of memory as a central resource, you need NUMA is a type of decentralizing, solving the specific issue of accessing a, a theoretically common memory space for multiple CPUs and cores through segmenting that memory and, and assigning bits of memory to specific cores CPUs. and CPUs. So if that's complicated, like oh, NUMA was like this overwhelming thing, we see that kind of an issue all over IT. So for example, distributed computing, scale out architecture more broadly uh, is kind of like that. You're decentralizing to uh, to give you that scaling ability. I mean, it's not an exact parallel to how NUMA solves what it solves, but my point is that you frequently see patterns in IT which makes understanding unfamiliar technology less intimidating. Something new to you is often like something you already know. I'd like to introduce you to our sponsor today, Illumio. Segmentation is the best way to prevent the lateral spread of cyber threats, but traditional network segmentation, you know, VLANs and subnets and zones, et cetera, they only provide some isolation because the primary purpose is to boost network performance, not to provide granular internal security. Now, let's look at the Illumio approach, adaptive segmentation technology. That is designed to stop lateral threats. It works seamlessly between any data center in the public cloud, and it keeps policies in place as applications move between environments and locations, and it can auto-scale up and down. Using Illumio, enterprises such as Morgan Stanley, Plantronics, Salesforce, and King Entertainment have achieved application micro-segmentation, a 90% reduction in firewall rules, and finally have visibility into all of their application dependencies. Find out more about Illumio by going to www.illumio.com slash
1: datanauts. All right, the book sounds cool. I like the premise of it. I like that you started with a problem that was way kind of further down the line and then backtracked as you kept you kept working the chain, essentially, to the point where the end result was we need to write a book. The chain is too long. We've certainly gotten nerdy on CPU scheduling and NUMA. So I would like to just kind of talk to the book in a more pragmatic sense. Let's ask some questions around design with CPU architecture and NUMA and whatnot. And uh, hopefully we can we can kind of tie that into what's in the book and the content that uh, our fellow engineers and data knots will be interested in. This is the speed round. It's, it's all for points. We'll see who wins. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Let's actually focus things right on the IT professional. So I'm a systems engineer or a server administrator, or virtualization engineer, something like that. And I'm thinking, all right, I need to start sizing my Virtualized hosts, the VMware host running ESXi, whatnot. What should I be thinking about with NUMA and some examples? Can I turn this off? Should I turn it off? Is there any particular Intel chip that I should be looking at? What's the sweet spot? You know, what are some things I should be thinking about when I'm looking at building a host and I want to make sure I don't screw up the NUMA architecture?
2: Oh man, this this will take another hour, man. You
1: only get like two minutes. I know,
2: I know. So you're putting pressure on me. So in the book we basically pull it apart and we start off with the hardware stuff. Then we go into the VM kernel behavior and then we finally end up with tips and tricks and things to look at from a VM perspective. And that's something we follow for all four sections, CPU, memory, storage, and network. Now everything is related to CPU, right? CPU is related of course, the CPU memory is also related to CPU because data wants to marry the CPU, but network. In the in the, uh, the virtualization environment is nothing but cpu right because uh, we virtualize a lot of network operations neil has got an amazing story about the TX thread about that maybe you can you can dive into that one as well but the reality is there are so many things to consider from which cpu do i need to buy well the newest of course but okay what do i need to look for well there's some some caching there is a qpi speed and there are the cores. And of course, the turbo speed. All those four things are covered in the book throughout the CPU section as well. And I think I will leave it at that. Sorry. Okay. <laughs>
1: Next question for the speed round. So, so let's say um, I could really feel that he wants to jump in further. I love it. You know, it's like the, the nerd, the nerdiness is being damned off, so that we only we only go so far. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Ethan. Go ahead.
0: So, so let's say I'm running a mixture of various workloads in the data center, and I want to buy a server that's got a great cost to benefit ratio with respect to NUMA. So, memory. How do I design around the quantity of DIMMs I should have? What their clock rate should be? The amount of memory per NUMA node. And then chipsets and cores. H- how do I design for the number of available cores per socket, the inclusion of hyper-threading and clock rates I mean, is there you know, feature sets I should be looking for on the board, uh, you know, et cetera? Give us some advice. You guys are teasing me because this will take another, uh, this <laughs> will <laughs> take another hour.
2: So one of the crucial things is the amount of DIMMs per channel. So in a CPU, you have a memory controller. And uh, today, today's architecture, have four four memory channels. Now you can add up to 3 DIMMs per channel so in total per CPU package you can add to, you can add 12 DIMMs so you can create a particular cap- uh, capacity. Problem is due to the amount of DIMMs you are actually using you're creating a particular overload on the electrical system thus it needs to reduce the speed because it needs to handle all that electrical load. So what we do in the book is we focus on getting the best performance while getting enough capacity. So you get the best economics.
0: So it's a trade-off. You lose access speed because of the, uh, the more dims you have. But the more dims you have, the more you know, access points you have into the memory space. So, it, so you end up with this trade-off. So it's
2: exactly. Capacity versus performance trade-off. So and, that, and that's the crucial thing, because if you look closely, and now this becomes the economic part, right? If you say, okay, if I want to have 192 gigs of memory per CPU, that will cost me an X amount of money, but it will cost me 21% performance. Now, that 21% performance, you need to figure out how to put a price tag on that one. And then you can say, okay, look, I don't want to have 192 gigs. I want to have uh, 256 gigs of memory. Now, that's more expensive, of course, but you will get that extra performance. So how much does that 20% performance degradation actually cost? Right? And
1: that's what we try to figure out. All right. We're ringing the bell on that one. Next question. The seat's getting hot. It's the hot seat, man. Um, let's talk about something I alluded to a little bit earlier that the business critical applications, which is kind of just a marketing way of saying the, the the big ones, you know, the, the workloads that require expanding beyond NUMA boundaries, you know, I have to use either more memory or more cores than are possibly available or financially available to build a server. How do you kind of look at that? How do you approach saying, all right, this server just needs to be so big that it's potentially going to be too memory or CPU intensive to fit inside of a NUMA node? Is it just we're not going to virtualize it. That's, it's not going to be an answer with virtualization or can we make it work in some way? You know, what, what are your thoughts around that?
2: What we try to do here is we don't, we don't want to be dramatic. From out of the box, the hypervisor will perform greatly. And if you throw a virtual machine at it, it will perform greatly as well. Now there's always this thing of optimizing and getting the best out of your system. And that's where you start to turn those, those nerd knobs. So in reality, Sometimes we only talk about uh, getting better performance in the range of 5% or 10%, maybe sometimes 20 right? But overall, if you look at the, way the, the benefits that virtualization brings, that outweighs every performance degradation most of the time. Mobility, manageability, HA out of the box on the infrastructure layer instead of trying to tinker with the application itself, all those things, right? We don't want to sound like you need to spend 20 hours on an ESX host to get it working. That's not the case. What we're trying to do is
0: try to figure out how to get the best out of your system, right? Okay, guys, one last speed round question here. And this this kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier. Uh, We're going to get into some power here. So do power settings have an effect on NUMA or processor performance in general? Because... Every vendor seems to have their different preferences. The high performance setting in the BIOS that disables certain C states is a potential issue. And there's also some discussion of QPI link power management based on workload percentages. Any advice here or thoughts? Yes. Do we have another hour? (laughs) Then you keep saying that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, because it's so... So here's the thing. We have a full chapter on power management. Okay. And that will be I think VMware is going to share that as some sort of PDF for the community. So I will, we will publish that, that pretty soon actually. In general, don't use BIOS power management settings, but use vSphere settings. Now we can debate whether you use high performance or balanced, I believe balanced is, is better for 95% of all the workloads. But the reality is the reason why you want to do it in the vSphere is because you can turn it off or you can change it programmatically with an API call or whatever, the moment you do it in a BIOS, first of all, it, does, it, loo- it lo- loses the granularity that the hypervisor actually has of the workload. And secondly, you have to boot into the server to change it. Now, we had one customer that actually had a power outage. And by using a power CLI command, it changed the power management from high performance to, to low to save precious minutes to actually power down all the VMs without any data loss. That is brilliant part of, of, of doing it in hypervisor. It's it's from high performance to high performance, it's exactly the same, right? So why do you want to do it where you cannot change it on the fly versus in vSphere, you can. And I think that's that's the key part.
1: Okay, everyone gets a million points. You all win the speed round. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's a winner on the data nods <laughs> Well, I wanna say thank you to uh, Frank and Niels for coming on, really appreciate you kind of brain vomiting all of the massive amounts of knowledge that you have around host resources. I'll start with you Frank, where can people find you on the interwebs and get in touch with you beyond the show?
2: Okay, so you can follow me on Twitter on at uh, Frank
1: and we have a Twitter account at hostdeepdive
2: for the book. So please follow that as well.
3: Okay, so I'm, uh, I try to blog as much as I can, which is not often lately on cloudfakes.nl and you can find me on Twitter at nhaarhoort and that's the way you pronounce it, Chris. It's like you've been
1: doing that longer than i have maybe with more, <laughs> Probably. with more practice i'll get it right all right well thank you again and that's it for today's edition of the data nuts podcast if you're a social creature you can follow me at chris wall on the twitter's or my blog wallnetwork.com and my delightful friend ethan is at ec banks on the twitters and his blog is ethancbanks.com for more of the data not shows about infrastructure engineering do a nose dive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You're going to find the data nuts talking about containers and conferences, certifications, host resources, of course, going to the cloud, full stack engineering, you name it, we got it. Until then, may your server lights blink, may your Nuba nodes be noble, and may your cables be cleanly managed.